This is a Federal News Network podcast. As an organization that operates around the globe, the Defense Department needs a global approach to information technology. Even though DOD planners like centralized control, they've started to look at how units outside of the continental United States can access the latest in commercial cloud technology. For this and other developments, we turn to Federal News Network's Jared Serbu and Scott Massioni. And Jared, we'll start with you. There's new policy out for use of commercial clouds outside of the United States. And I guess my question is first, are they talking about the use of the standard cloud providers that have instances outside of the continental United States or maybe European providers? We're going to find out, but that is certainly some of the suggestions that are that are in this strategy, and it really is more of a strategy than a policy. It's it's worth a read. It's only ten pages, and it kind of outlines where DoD sees uh, its needs for commercial cloud overseas in the coming years. But yes, there definitely is a discussion in that document, Tom, about using commercial cloud providers, possibly five G providers, possibly sa- uh, satellite communications providers that DoD may not even trust. So part of part of the uh, part of the objective in this um, in this uh, what they call OCONUS cloud strategy is to be able to do some of the things that they've previously talked about in, for example, the, the DoD initiative called Operate Through, which really is all about being able to transmit data over, let's say, a 5G connection that's operated by a network provider, let's say China, that we may not even trust. So they're, they're looking at a number of different angles here, but the key component of this strategy to me is it is a big divergence from what DoD was thinking in terms of commercial cloud serving at the tactical edge as little as two years ago when they published their last cloud strategy. The centerpiece of that was Jedi Cloud. As we know, Jedi is stuck in limbo in court right now, and uh, there's there's really not a whiff of, of reliance on Jedi in this Okona strategy, which was really a huge part of what Jedi was supposed to be all about. Right. Jedi was a single provider, and this strategy points to the use of multiple commercial providers, which is pretty much de facto the way it is now in DOD. Correct. That, that's pretty much right, and that's that's the direction that that really each of the military services has gone as they've figured out that it's easier to stitch together multiple commercial cloud services than was perhaps thought at the inception of the Jedi process back in 2017. But it's worth pointing out that this strategy not only kind of leaves Jedi aside for the moment, since it's sort of TBD in the court process, it explicitly calls out a, a foreseen need on the part of DoD to be able to stitch together multiple cloud services overseas. There is not a mention of a single enterprise cloud service serving those OCONUS users anywhere in this document, let alone an explicit mention of JEDI, which I thought was the most interesting thing in these 10 pages. And the other thing in those 10 pages, too, is that there is the recognition that you need some of these services at the tactical edge and not at garrisons, bases, and so on. Yeah, and I think that that really is kind of a central theme of this strategy is DOD's recognition that a lot of the innovation that's happening in the cloud space in DOD really is confined to the continental United States right now. And and overseas users, users, depending on what combatant command you're serving in, doesn't have as much reachback access, not only to the data, but to the innovation that's happening in the cloud space. So this really is, I think, an effort to unify and flatten um, the quality of services that people have access 
access to irrespective of where they happen to be up to and including, as you say, the tactical edge, which is where you get into the need to start using some of those 5G and SATCOM links that are going to start to get more of that data to the battlefield. And briefly, what happens with a strategy like this? Does it transmogrify at some point into policy or what are they trying to accomplish here? Yeah, that would be the that would be the typical thing that would happen with a DoD strategy. Normally, you would see some sort of implementation plan or a playbook to to, to sort of put this into action. There's no specific timeline for when when exactly those next steps will happen called out in the strategy. But but it does come at a time when we already know that DOD is revisiting that 2019 cloud strategy a bit. We were told by Danielle Metz, the deputy DOD CIO for Information Enterprise just last week, that they're also going to update the cloud strategy from 2019 to build in some 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 new software development principles to, to build in agility so that you're not just talking about a cloud as the place where you put and store and process some of your data, but you actually use it in the way modern software development is done and incorporate some of those principles into into government software development. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu and Scott Mossioni. And Scott, let's turn to you on a totally different topic, and that is service members are going to be able to file medical malpractice claims against the Department of Defense? That's right. And the key word here is claims and not necessarily suits against the Defense Department. So starting in mid-July, service members will be able to have the option to file claims for something that happened to them that had to do with, with malpractice in the medical realm, if you were mistreated by a doctor uh, in the Defense Health Agency or something like that. This policy doesn't, however, take that traditional route of using judicial review and suing uh, you know, the government, which uh, would get in the way of what's called the Ferris Doctrine, a uh, long, complicated uh, court case basically saying that uh, active duty military members can't sue the government. So. The Defense Department is sort of the judge and jury on if you're going to get a medical malpractice suit claim or not. They have a certain board that will look at things and, and decide if you get the money. Now, uh, with, the, uh, with the suits, if it's under $100,000, it pretty much just gets rubber stamped and, and sent off. Over $100,000 is when you really need to start sending in evidence and all that sort of stuff before you can get your claims. At this point, there are 227 troops who have filed for malpractice claims. It's an estimated payout of about $2.2 billion. Now, that was last. Uh, that was in February. That was last counted. Might have gone up by now, especially that the word is out. Uh, but you know, this is definitely a huge change for service members now that they have uh, some recourse. Uh, for some of the uh, malpractice that they've necessarily been under. And do we know anything of the nature of the claims? That is to say, did they occur, did the malpractice occur within DOD medical facilities? Do they occur in field hospitals in Afghanistan, in Iraq, that kind of thing, in, in, in Germany? Or do we know anything about the nature and quality of them? So the Federal Register notice doesn't seem to uh, limit it to anything. At this point, it just seems to be the military health system. Another thing is that right now they're working on mostly things back to 2017. So, uh, you know, if this happened to you in 1955, it's not very likely that you're going to be, uh, you know, working with the Defense Department on this. So there are more recent claims and then also future claims that will be happening. And also on the medical front, Scott, you're reporting that the Defense Department brass are asking Congress to maybe restore medical research wings that have left the military. What's going on there? 
Well, the Defense Department's been going back and forth with Congress for years over how the Defense Health Agency is going to be taking over responsibilities from the military services. The Defense Health Agency was supposed to take all of the military treatment facilities over uh, during these next few years, and they have taken largely a lot of them over, but that was put on pause because of the coronavirus uh, pandemic and a few other issues. Uh, but military service uh, leaders were pretty uh, wary, let's say, about it. Uh, now, and, and they have been wary about this part for quite a while, all of the defense research arms uh, that have to do with the medical treatment facilities, for example, the Army's Medical Research and Materiel Command, may, under this proposal, stay with the Army. The reason that they want it to stay with the Army is because they want closer uh, accountability and closer oversight over what these uh, commands research. They want it to be directly interested in soldiers and what their sort of operational work is instead of having the Defense Department just gloss over and say, okay, this is what we're going to focus our medical research on. So each of these services want it to be specifically catered to their, you know, the Navy wants water needs, the Army wants more land needs, all those sorts of things catered toward the injuries they may see in their domains. Federal News Network's Scott Massioni and Jared Serbu, their latest DOD Reporter's Notebook, now online at federalnewsnetwork.com. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, you think about a pandemic, for example, that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is to sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on, those, on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. <laughs> Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned 
that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina. Uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a rural school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values, but the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances, 
So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor, we call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me, if there was some advice and counsel I could give, is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.